0: The title of my talk this evening is The Sure Heart's Release, The Sure Heart's Release. I wanted to give you a long-range view of practice and take a look at the foundational practices that help us along the way. These are the practices that give us a lot of courage and a lot of faith to keep going even when it's really difficult. So this talk is actually in three parts. And the three parts uh, were named by my first teacher, Manindraji. And he called these parts the three pillars of the Dharma. Three pillars of the Dharma. And tonight I'd like to present the first two pillars which are about the practice of dana or generosity, and the practice of sila, or living in harmony. And then the third part will come in my next talk, and that's the practice of bhavana, meaning the development of the heart, the development of the mind, with our practices of concentration and wisdom that we do here. So first, just to give some background. So there are many of you here that have been practicing for a long, long time, and a number of you who are quite new to practice. But even if you're quite new, you might already realize that bit by bit, moment by moment, day by day, we feel like we're gaining more confidence and strength in our practice. We kind of know intuitively more and more the profound effect that being mindful moment to moment, which brings in wisdom, we see the true nature more often, more spontaneously, more naturally, we see the true nature of how things are, of the reality of this uh, mind and body continuum, which is the same for everyone else. So we learn how to bring a more balanced, compassionate awareness to experience because we learn that when we're harsh with ourselves, when we're harsh with others and our own minds, it doesn't help. And so we shy away from that. And we learn to practice loving-kindness, compassion, ways of being tender with ourselves. So we see in that way mindfulness and our heart and mind unfold in places it's it's been folded in upon itself. We see this kind of opening that happens in different kind of crevices where there has been a fold. It opens up and things come out of it that we learn about ourselves, how to handle that more wisely. So we know how to be more clear and more soberingly honest with what's unfolding. We don't kind of shy away or turn away or um, hit, hit out at it because it's difficult to bear. So we understand for ourselves how this continuity of moment-to-moment mindfulness brings forth that wisdom in our minds that sees the direct path to, maybe at first it isn't the direct path to liberation, but it's more the direct path to more ease in our hearts, in our lives, and inclines to that, um, to that direction without hesitation. We kind of see where it hurts us and we turn away from that. We see clearly so we know that place and we don't need to do that again even though habit pattern brings it up again. But then we turn the mind, the activity of the speech and the behavior towards what's more beneficial. So we begin to see that mindfulness brings about this deepening of wisdom or this kind of... um, more clarity in the mind that's able to discern what's wholesome, what's skillful, what leads to deeper peace and happiness for ourselves and others and puts a strong intention and action with that to incline in that direction. So there are times when we see that this is not right, the direction we're going into, and we want to actually naturally turn ourselves into the direction that brings more balance, more loving-kindness, more compassion, more clarity, even when the clarity is not easy to bear. So then we also see that because of this moment-to-moment mindfulness, it brings about the deepening wisdom into what's discerning the unwholesome. It discerns what's unskillful, habit patterns that cause hurt or pain to ourselves and others and it knows more and more naturally how to refrain from doing there from going, doing that or going there very um, many of you use words like you say I'm not going there I mean it's not like a whole long sentence but there's an, there's a, a sign that oh this what's coming up is not going to be helpful so it shies away it shrinks away from that So it knows how to relinquish that. So in many of the suttas, the the ancient and sacred words of the Buddha, the Buddha said many times, in many ways, develop what is wholesome, skillful, let go of what is unwholesome. So bit by bit, that's what we're learning how to do in a very natural, spontaneous way. So in that way, we see that we begin to live in more harmony with our highest values. Not just the values of, you know, living in community, but we live in harmony with our own highest values. And we tend to feel really stable about that. We, we tend to feel like we have strong roots in the ground that can keep us upright when we're living in alignment and in harmony with our highest values. So, of course, it happens gradually and it's a gradual awakening to this. It's not like it happens overnight. It's very, in some times, some ways, it's very hard won. So it brings forth so many beautiful qualities in us that we begin to rely upon. And we begin to see that these things, these natural beautiful qualities that are coming up, are coming up more by themselves. We see when the all that um, unwholesomeness, that unskillfulness is cleared away, the natural skillfulness of the mind can come forth. And of course we want to nurture that, to feed that. So we learn we can rely on these inner attitudes um, not because we know them to be true in in our kind of intellectual minds, but we know them to be true because we've experienced that this brings more peace in my heart. This brings more peace to others. No matter what is thrown in the ponds of our lives, in the ponds of our momentary experiences that are um, discombobulating, we have this clear faith in ourselves that if we can just wait this out and see the impermanence of this, see it arise and change and pass away, and thereby sometimes understanding how impersonal it is, or if it's something wonderful that arises and passes away, we begin to understand that nothing is going to give us that lasting happiness. So we tend to let go more easily, because we see this, we allow ourselves by this practice to see this over and over and over and over again. And that's what it takes. It's really not something that someone can bestow upon us or say that, um, you know, now you're healed. It's like a, a kind of a do-it-yourself your yourself or do-it-your-not-self um, <laughs> if we really want to follow that. So the ripples of the pond in our hearts just settle back down and you've, in your own ways you've experienced this one way or another and you see that okay it's it's going to be clearer and we can see the the path ahead with more clarity and we know more and more what to do we're not confused by it anymore we see the truth of life with stillness and clarity over and over again So this wisdom brings about that deepening understanding that our practice produces refinements of happiness and peace that are beyond anything that we can gain in this world. Sometimes when we haven't experienced yet that kind of deep calm or concentration and we get a little afraid of it, we begin to see that, oh, this is just because it's new. We haven't experienced this before. And this is not something I can get in the world. It's just something I can get by understand, experience, by doing this practice. So when I used to um, practice in Burma with Seda Upandita, he used to say, oh, you're coming for the goodies of the mind again, you know. (laughs) Uh, But not just that, it it would be even beyond that that he would encourage us to kind of um, cultivate the path to that. So that path is seen more and more easily. The happiness of the mind, the peace of the heart that can take place that doesn't have anything to do with the conditions of this world, that are beyond the conditions of this world. So we see that this happiness, these refinements of happiness and peace are not from acquiring or gaining anything. Even Dharma knowledge, Dharma, just kind of that knowledge that we get from understanding the Dharma intellectually doesn't get us there. Even very high meditative states of concentration or bliss, that really isn't the path to Um, that kind of peace and happiness that's beyond this world, beyond the conditions of this world. So we see over and over again that it's from the purification, not from the acquisition of anything, but the purification of the tenacious habit patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is what's important in our practice. Through time, in each moment, and throughout periods of time we begin to see that these selfish harmful tendencies of the mind tend to weaken, they tend to dissolve and the beautiful tendencies of the mind that cause harmony and connection like generosity and compassion, loving kindness they strengthen quite naturally. This beautiful quote by Sogyal Rinpoche says that The practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become useful to others. So it's that purification uh, of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own hearts, the tendencies in our own minds. And what comes of that are, are the beautiful qualities because we learn that in tandem. You can't separate that in your practice. When we let go of greed, hatred, and delusion, the opposites arise and are developed. Generosity, loving-kindness, unconditional loving-kindness, and wisdom. So when I first started practicing, like all of you, I was searching for some peace. I had told you, told you this story of Um, coming to my first retreat um, and how that came about. And when I got to that retreat, I um, met my first teacher, Manindraji. And I was in my mid-twenties, and by then I already had three children, and I was already a single parent. I mean, that is maximum dukkha. (laughs) Single parent, three children, clamoring, active, you know, I I was, um, I had come from a terrible situation in the Philippines, from martial law. It's a long story, but my children had their own uh, nursemaids, and I had a lot of help. And I wasn't born, I was born into a poor family. And then I got into that family by karma, I guess, you know. Um, it was the wish of, of my mother, and I followed her wishes. And that's that's kind of a long story too. So <laughs> I was so young and I was thrown into this. But then I had to leave and I had the courage to, to leave that. And so my children were really rambunctious. And they were really like untamed. <laughs> they got everything they wanted practically, you know. So I had to learn how to really... Um, gather my energy up and be a good mother. But I was completely, in the beginning, um, it was difficult, of course. You know, I didn't know how to do that in a way. But I learned, and I'm a natural mother in a way. So um, when I came to America, I really wanted to find peace, I really wanted some calm in my heart so I could do that for my children. I wanted something more than that, in a kind of um, aspirational way, you know, to understand more deeply the nature of life. But I couldn't articulate that at that time. It was a s- lot of suffering that kind of threw me into that. And so, uh, when I asked Manindraji, when he asked me, "What, what did you come here for?" and I said, "Well, my aspiration was for more calm. It was more f- for more serenity." for sanity, so I could see life more clearly. I wanted to be a good mother and a good human being, but I also wanted to understand life. Like, what's this all about? How did I get thrown into this? And how am I living this out? Well, he made it clear to me at that time that all of those things will be experienced, a sense of calm in your heart, a sense of more clarity, and of course you know sanity you kind of can understand what's going on more clearly and live in harmony with that instead of you know fighting it but he made it clear to me that those were those were beautiful aspirations but not very not aiming very highly in in terms of the teachings of the buddha Because the Buddha made it very clear that what he was teaching was far beyond that. That the ultimate aim of the path of practice that the Buddha taught was not just for having a calm mind and living in relative peace and harmony. It was far beyond that. The Buddha's ultimate aim for us is to fulfill our potential, to realize that unconditional peace and happiness that doesn't depend on the conditions of this world being in such a way that it gives it to us all the time. He talked about the unshakable deliverance of mind that was beyond what can be known by the uh, the intellect. And so he called this in different ways, but in one way, the sure heart's release. So I want to say these words of the Buddha from this discourse on the simile of the heartwood, this is in the Majjhima He was talking to a group of Brahmins and he said, So this holy life, Brahmins, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. And in another passage he says, The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings. Of the Buddha. So the release the Buddha is talking about here is this complete release from greed, hatred, and delusion. Through the weakening of it, through the seeing of uh, impermanence and um, the impersonal nature of everything, and through the understanding that nothing in this conditional world is going to give us lasting happiness. Yes, some happiness, but that doesn't last. And so there is something beyond that. So I asked Manindraji, is someone like me able to do that? You know, that's a pretty high bar, of course. And without hesitation, he said, yes, of course. And I told you the story in my first Dhamma talk on faith, I think, of how he told me about Deepama, one of his relatives, and several of, people he knew that lived in the village around him that he taught the Dhamma to and this practice to and that they were able to understand that sure heart's release from their own practice. So it was far beyond what um, even they aspired to just by doing the practice. it said that in the, in the discourses it said that one has to hear this possibility, in order to actually drop that in the mind. So we know that it's possible. It has been possible for others. At least that's what is said. That's what the stories are about. But we have to find our own way. Like Manindra used to say to us, the Buddha solved his problem. Now you have to solve your own. I can't do it for you. And so in those days, I don't remember him using the word enlightenment so much, but he used the word purification a lot, the weakening, the uprooting of the three major habit patterns of the mind that cause a lot of pain to us. And then because we don't really understand it, it's pain that we then cause to others. And this is the three patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion that are so deeply rooted. So Manindra used to say, there are three areas of life we can bring careful, mindful attention to. And those will begin to form the foundation and the uprooting and dissolving of those three roots. It supports a long-range aspiration of complete liberation, and not just keep us on the low bar of the Dhamma, of understanding what this is all about. So he put it in that framework of the three pillars of the Dhamma. That that was his wording of it. It's not to be found in, in the suttas. He just looked at it that way. So tonight I'm going to talk about the first two of those pillars, which is, first one is Dana, um, the mindful practice of the action of giving from the inner attitude of generosity. So it's not merely the thought of being generous, but it's actually following it up with the giving of it, the action of that. This is what dana means. And I'll talk about the second pillar, which is sila. That's a mindful practice of living in harmony, refraining from harming uh, others, and actually our Ourselves, in in terms of it harming our own karmic stream um, from greed, hatred, and delusion, and that's practicing the five basic precepts that we've been chanting uh, every um, Uposatha day here. So, this brings about the harmony in ourselves as well. So, we can, when it does that, then we're able to practice the third pillar, which is called bhavana. And that's the development of the mind and the heart, uh, the development of wisdom. So bhavana means bringing forth, bringing forth that insightful, uh, liberating wisdom. So this um, simplicity of careful attention on those three pillars of life, that's been a reliable foundation for my practice and just kind of um, naturally for for everyone's practice so it's important to understand how these trainings can develop in an open hearted harmonious way so that we can take refuge in these trainings, we can really give importance to them, we can take them seriously, they're not just for when we come to retreat and that we can take them home with us and remember them day by day. They're about our harmonious connections with others, which then kind of continue to re-engender that harmonious connection with ourselves, to really understand that we're living in harmony with our highest or our deepest values. And we're not just chasing after what gives us pleasure over and over again. But what are our highest values? So, how can these become wholesome, positive forces guiding our lives? When we connect with others um, through the practice of dana, which I want to talk about first, it gives us that connection um, through you know, connecting with others through our generosity. And then when we connect through keeping the precepts, it's also like a giving because we're giving them a sense giving others a sense of safety. It brings a deep sense of well being to others and to ourselves when we do those those two acts of connection. Through giving, through Dana, through Sila, through giving of a safety to others. And we notice that our mind isn't plagued by regret. So I don't know about you, but um, maybe you can remember back to when you first came on retreat and maybe times that you thought had you had memories from being in your life and you sat with those memories. And sometimes memories for me would come up of how maybe I said something or I did something that wasn't quite right. And it would cause me, like, a lot of vulnerability and shakiness in my practice. I wouldn't feel, like, totally settled. And so in time, yeah, I could work with that forgiveness of myself, maybe forgiveness of others if they harmed me in any way. So... My mind became less plagued by regret when I could carry that dana and sila out into my life. So when I came back into practice, I didn't have that sense of maybe unworthiness. It was more of a seamless thing. I could come into my practice life in retreat and feel really settled in my heart. Not all the time, but sometimes and more times Uh, more and more in my practice. And when I could go back into my life, I could feel a deep sense of settledness there where I knew I could rely on those places that would bring me to more skillful action. So it takes training. It's not just a matter of, yeah, you're right, you know, not just a matter of agreeing with the Buddha or agreeing with the Buddha's words. But it actually takes practice to do that, refraining from doing harm when we f- we feel like saying something, um, giving when we have the impulse to give in any way of our of our um, monetary or um, material resources or ourselves of our time, our energy. So this is about training. This is from. Um, Tibetan Dzogchen practice the heart essence of the great perfection. Now in our day-to-day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented, stabilized mind, is a source of our happiness. So we can come to our day-to-day life and to our place here on the cushion and feel a deep calm, a contentedness. We feel okay with how things are because of our actions, our words. So, you know, when the Buddha offered these teachings, when he would go out to communities, he would offer these teachings in a gradual way. And uh, he would start his teaching to different places um, around him, or whether he traveled near or far, with the teaching of Dana. Because it depended, the teaching of what was really helping the the Buddha and all of his disciples to be able to live day to day when people could give them food and they could sustain their bodies and give them shelter and medicines and um, something to wear, robes to wear. It would help them sustain their lives so that they could continue to give the teachings. And um, so it was said that during that time that the the um, monastics needed to live near a community so that there could be this exchange of, you know, the... The teachings would be given, and the sustaining of the bodies and the shelter would be given to those who were giving the teachings. And so it was—it uh, was important for the monastics to live near a community. And so the community thrived because they would—they would receive these beautiful teachings. They would develop in their minds and hearts, and they would live that way. And the the community of the monastics, the ones who gave the teachings, would also thrive. So it was important to give the teaching of Dana and to understand what the value of giving and, and come from a coming from a place of generosity, not of a place of that you feel responsible or that it has to be done, but really coming from a place of generosity. So I learned this um, this teaching, actually, from Manindraji during a time when he wasn't very well and he needed some surgery. So I took it upon myself to um, offer to take care of him during that time, to bring him to America and take care of him during that time that he needed help. So I found a way for him to get the surgery and um, then he stayed in my home and I took care of him. And one um, evening he said to me, do you understand um, what you are uh, giving and what you are gaining in your practice of generosity? And I said, you know, I I just know that I want to help you because you're my teacher. And I I just, um, through my love for you and my respect for you, I want to help you. And he said, well, it's helpful for you to understand completely uh, what Dana means. Because you can give without wisdom and still the laws of cause and effect will work, you know. By giving, you will also, there will also be that kind of circular that there, your life will also be at ease because of gifts that can come to you. Um, and not only that, uh, but if you understand with wisdom the why giving is important why dana is important then you will understand that it leads to the highest gift for yourself and that is a gift of liberation so he asked me do you want to understand completely you know the what dana means for you you can learn it uh, you can understand what it means in terms of wisdom so then he of course i said yes so he continued to give the teaching to me He said, Dana has two aims. The practice of generosity has two aims. The first aim is to benefit or to help others. This comes out of compassion. And so we should do that because we're generating beautiful quality in our heart, the quality of compassion and also the quality of generosity, Dana. But it's also benefiting others. So how it benefits others... um, Uh, also benefits ourselves. It benefits others and ourselves. So how it helps others, of course, is when we give of ourselves to others, our time, our kindness, our energy, our material resources, it relieves others of their suffering in the present time or in future times, and it inspires in them a sense of worthiness. This is something we don't often think about. You know, when we, we give to someone, it's like they just feel worthy of being given something. And sometimes people say, I can't receive this from you, you know, because I don't feel worthy or something like that. But when we give to them, it's like something grows in them, or that a sense of worthiness in themselves. And so that's what we're giving to them as well. Some there are sometimes I go to Portland a lot because that's where two of my grandchildren live, and um, I love uh, when I go downtown. There are these different kinds of beings that are living in the streets, you know. And I try to give to different peoples, um, and sometimes they're very crafty, you know, in <laughs> in what they. Um, how they get something from you, so one time I remember this man i I was giving him I said, "How much do you need to buy yourself some food?" And he said, "Oh, about ten dollars so So I took out ten dollars and i give it gave it to him, and he, and he said, "But if you give me another ten dollars, and then he said, "Then I can buy more, I can get more." And I said, "What will you really get more food?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, do you promise? And he said, yes, I promise I'll do that. And I said, okay, I'm counting on you to be worthy of your promise. And so I gave, so I gave him another $10. So I thought, well, you know, maybe he will feel more worthy of that. So before I left, I said, do you feel worthy of, of this? You can be worthy of your promise. And he kind of looked at me quizzically and he said, I think I can you know. And he really, I felt a real deep connection with him at that moment. It relieves others of their suffering, but it also gives them a sense that they are a worthy person to be given to. It gives them a sense of inner richness, and it makes them feel loved, most of all. So, i read in this book, The Random Acts of Kindness, somebody said, um, when I was going through something really hard, someone called me up and played the piano on my answering machine, and it made me feel so loved. And I never discovered who that was, you know, during the times when we didn't have the cell phone where we could see who was calling, I guess. So um, I told that story once in this talk. And then a person who was in the audience who didn't have, in the retreat, who didn't have... Um, it was hard enough for that person to get to the retreat, you know, to pay his way to that retreat. And to forego the, um, what he would get in pay for his work to take that time off. And so he he sent me an email and he said, would you go online... And he said, I have a gift for you. And um, he said, go online right here and click onto this and I have a gift for you and I'm going to play my piano for you. So he was a concert pianist and, um, and he played this beautiful message to me of his gift to me, of his love and his gratitude. And that was his Donna that he gave to me. And so, um, you know, I really, he, he was, he did something that was far beyond I could do. And it made me feel so loved to receive that. It was, and sometimes when, you know, I don't feel loved, sometimes, can you believe that I don't feel loved sometimes, but I, I don't, then I, I go, I have that on my screen and I just punch it and I play it. <laughs> so, you know, the Buddha said if beings knew, knew as I know the results of sharing gifts they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others nor would the taint of stinginess upsets their hearts and even if it were their last and final bit of food they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. So, you know, Manindraji, when he was staying um, at our house at that time, of course, we would offer him things to eat, we would offer him food, and so he he wouldn't take the food unless it was offered, you'd have to offer him the plate, or give it to him, or put it in his, his plate, and once it was offered, then it was his, and then he would know that now he could offer it to someone else, you know, so sometimes we'd be sitting at the table, and he'd peel the banana and then he'd take a piece off and he'd usually be sitting to my left and then he'd just kind of shove it in my mouth you know and I'd, he'd say he'd actually call me mom because all the kids called me mom and he'd say mom, mom and I'd say yes and he says I have banana, banana and I'd go and he'd <laughs> shove it in my mouth because he would offer it to me, he was offering me you know what, what he could offer and then, of course, there were times I couldn't be home with him so because uh, I had to go to work and sometimes I would just leave him his lunch and I'd come home and um, I would see like a lot of ants on the floor or ground, you know, and, and we had a lot more cockroaches during that time because he would feed them. <laughs> because he would save a little bit and he would actually, like what the Buddha said, if you knew I'd what I knew the results of sharing, you would not, you would share every bit of what you had if you had anything to share. So he would, he would really share it with, with the insects. <laughs> the Buddha said that, or it says somewhere in the teachings, it is medi- meritorious even to throw away water after washing one's plate or bowl to have a generous thought that the food particles may feed creatures in the ground. Even that, Sense of generosity is really important. So, so that's you know helping others, and then the second aim is to help ourselves. So it supports ourselves in this, um, in this giving because it understands that we're supporting our own well-being. We're developing wholesome states of mind. We're developing loving-kindness, that connection with others, compassion, we're we're happy because we see others enjoying, um, and they also have gratitude. When we give to others, we see the gratitude in them, and we're happy for that, we're developing equanimity because we can part from what is ours, that's a source of equanimity. It brings an immediate happiness that for us that no one can take away from us. So, beforehand, there's the intention to give. It's so, so surrounded by happiness when we really experience that in ourselves. That beforehand, there's the intention to give. Then, at the moment when we're giving, there is that happiness before and during, and then afterwards. We think about it, you know, in the metta practice when we ask you to remember your own goodness, you might remember your acts of giving. And then when you remember that, you're also happy. It's simple. It's very, very simple. It's not, you don't, Manindra G used to tell me, you know, you can study the, you can study all you want, the all the, all the suttas, and it's good to study. But if you just keep it really simple, you can you can develop the deepest peace these people that he taught did not you know did not study and were able to split hairs and kind of understandings of the dhamma but they really developed uh, a a deep peace and contentedness in themselves so it brings immediate happiness no one can take away and um it really helps us to see that by by giving, um, we're internally, we're really contented in ourselves because we feel rich to be able to do that. We have a richness of, of um, the possibility of developing those beautiful qualities. So when one gives... Um, Upandita would, would know when we would come to give uh, meals at a retreat like many of you have been offering uh, your generosity there, feeding all of us who are practicing and guiding and teaching. So this is very, very important in terms of understanding your own generosity and where it's leading to. And this is really important teaching for you to understand because Always in the monasteries, when one gives a meal, at least in the monastery that I usually go to, Upandita would give a talk about the benefits of giving so that one could really understand what the Buddha was um, talking about in terms of its richness. So it said that when one gives, one bestows on another life, beauty, happiness, strength, and intelligence. Having bestowed this beauty upon others, one becomes the beneficiary of the same. So it's like what you put out there comes back. You know, it's the laws of cause and effect. There will be wealth and timely fulfillment of needs. There'll be security from dangers, from fires, flood, thieves, from kings and from the government. That's in the ancient suttas. One, one can live with abundance. One lives with abundance. And this comes from a lot of the beautiful teachings all over the world in many traditions. My aunt was a very devout Christian, my auntie Esther, and she would always say to me, cast your bread upon, your wa- upon the waters because a casserole will come back. You know? She was really into giving and she lived her life that way. So the far-reaching benefit and result of the practice of giving and generosity is the development of a heart and mind of non-greed. That's the opposite of greed, of course. The benefit of that is having that heart that's not greedy, that's not holding on. It becomes easy to let go. Utejaniya says that giving, it's giving away your greed... Oh, I heard Joseph's talk just recently, or maybe I heard it in person, where he said that nowadays he's, he sees the benefit so clearly of generosity that any impulse he gives to greed, he doesn't—he gives to giving. He doesn't ignore it; he acts on it because of the the power of that action. I remember when I was in Burma, and I thought beforehand of giving to my favorite nun her, n- her name is Kamala ma Kamala also, and I thought of giving her th- medicines that I had left over, and um she's a doctor, so she would give them to others and um, so on other things like umbrella and cloth for her uh, her robes and i I had an appointment with her, and I said, Ma Kamala, I've come to give you these things. You know, because giving is a very kind of formal act in Burma. You, you give not just, here it is, you know, <laughs> or you just drop it somewhere in some box somewhere. You give with two hands, because you give with your body, mind, and your heart. So I said, I'm giving you this um, out of my gratitude for your help and uh, with my whole heart, but it's so small, you know, I don't have a lot to give you. And she said, Kamala, do not say that. Do not say it's so small. The intention to give, she said, Chetana, that's intention. Chaitana is powerful. Chaitana is strong. Every intention you have to give is feeding your own heart and mind with non-greed. It's really helping you in a powerful way to let go. So always remember that from her. Achancha says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. So eventually, you know when conditions are ripe, in our practice, we're going to need to do that. Really let go completely of all the sankharas, of this, all the ways that these habit patterns have kept us in greed, hatred, and delusion. And if that isn't your, anywhere on your you know, radar, then at the time of death, we're really going to have to let go. And so we could say that we're practicing for that now. You know, for all the generosity, all the giving that we do. We need, we'll need to let go of all formations, physical and mental, at the time of our death or at the time of liberation. Complete peace and freedom at the time of liberation. So this is the first pillar um, of the Dhamma, of the three pillars. I think I'm going to stop here and I'll talk about um, the second and third pillar in the next talk. I'd like to end, though, by um, reading from, this was... um, This was written by Seda Upandita in the first retreat that he taught that I took a month-long retreat of in in Australia in 1985. And so it was um, translated into English. So they found a way for things to rhyme. It was interesting. So this is called freedom. It was translated by Alan Clements, I I should say, too. A great uh, Dharma friend of all of ours. Freedom. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, dwell only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with a fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity Dwell only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment, adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity. Dwell only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Dwell only in states of peace and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness, The three poisons of wrong view, conceit, and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way. Adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So may these contemplations lead to your highest welfare and benefit. Thank you. you have a little more time to do some walking or get a mindful cup of tea. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.